1: Now for more details about how technology companies have been embroiled in the uh Russian meddling in the U.S. election. I want to bring in Garrett, uh, Garrett DeVinck. He is our technology reporter in Washington, D.C. today. Uh, joining us now, you can follow Garrett on Twitter at Garrett D. Uh, Garrett, uh, mentioning Twitter, let's begin there. Twitter has identified and removed about 2,700 accounts that were linked to something called the Internet Research Agency, uh, Maybe just use that as a jumping off point to explain what is it that's being investigated and what do we know so far about social media and collusion uh, with uh, Russian actors and um, the U.S. election in, in November?
3: So yeah, we have three hearings over the next two days. One today, two tomorrow, and in all three of them, representatives of Twitter, Google, and Facebook will face questions from lawmakers. You mentioned Twitter. You mentioned the IRA, the Internet Research Agency. So that is the shadowy organization that has been linked to the Kremlin. That you know the public has known about for several years now. Uh, you know, dating back to 2013 even. But the, all this information that the tech companies has have disclosed, they disclosed a whole new raft of information last night. Twitter uh, mentioning those. 2700 accounts. As you mentioned, Facebook talking about um, 126 million Americans may have seen content that was generated or shared by Russian linked actors. Now, those numbers are both bigger than what had been disclosed up until this point. And we just saw Senator Mark Warner, who is the top Democrat Democrat on the Senate Intelligence Committee, who will be interviewing these um, companies tomorrow, saying, You know, in a scrum to reporters at Congress just now that, you know, all this information that's been released kind of shows to him that maybe the story is going to keep getting bigger than what we know right now. He said, you know they disclosed a certain amount earlier, and now they're disclosing more. He called, um, you know, the attempts by the tech companies to kind of get ahead of the story as just incremental changes. So, you know, the tech companies are really up for for sort of a real grilling from lawmakers today and tomorrow.
2: Garrett, you know, we think about President Trump's administration as being anti-regulation, or at least pro-deregulation. What's the appetite right now to increase regulation around the tech companies relating to uh, some of this investigation into Russia's interference in the election,
3: I mean, you're seeing, you know, the uh, the Democrats in particular have a put forward a bill sponsored by two uh, Democrats as well as Republican Senator John McCain. So there is some bipartisan efforting there to sort of regulate the advertising. On Online um, you know social networks such as these, and kind of bring the standards that we have for radio and television up to the level on you know the online up to the, the level we have for these other mediums, a lot of other senators and, and congress people have sort of expressed you know they're not so sure they they want to kind of see how these hearings go before they take a stand and that's really one of the things that, that's up for debate here. We have some people in Congress saying, you know this is the bill that we need to regulate." advertising on these systems make sure that um, users of the social networks know when something is political when it's and who it's been funded by and other people not so sure yet what's
1: the cost benefit analysis of something like this garrett not to the companies but to the nefarious uh, agents that were placing these ads i mean it's relatively inexpensive to put these ads and this kind of content up
3: online, correct it's another question that we will be you know hearing a lot of people talking about and debating in the next couple of days, which is if you have a small amount of money and you know a consort- concerted group of people trying to use that money to buy advertisements and then sharing it organically as well, how much impact can you really have? I mean, the amount of money that was involved, $100,000 that Facebook has been able to find, you know, we're not sure there could be more, but $100,000, I mean, this is a drop in the bucket for the amount of money that is spent on these platforms every day. On Google, it was significantly even less than that. So, you know, it's hard to know exactly how much of an impact these Russian trolls, so to speak, actually had on the election.
2: Garrett, I'm sure you've read through the testimony because uh, these big tech giants uh, have released, pre-released some of what they're going to say. Can you give us a flavor of the approach that they're taking?
3: The approach that they're taking is to kind of, you know, try to show that they're being transparent and say, you know, Facebook's general counsel who will be uh, testifying, you know, use very strong language. He said it was, you know, an affront to democracy that this kind of thing's happened, that they're very upset about it, that they really want to work with lawmakers to change it. But what they also want to do is make sure that, you know, the regulations aren't too strict and don't go too far for them that might inhibit them to actually do their business. You know, one thing that came out this morning, the internet um, lobbying group that represents these these three companies and a few other ones said, you know, we need these laws if they are to come forward to apply generally, not to just carve out our three companies because we're the biggest names in this fight.
2: Garrett DeVink, thank you so much for joining us. Garrett DeVink is a technology reporter for Bloomberg News. He's in Washington, D.C. today because that is where the action is at with Facebook, Twitter, uh, and Google all heading to Congress to talk about what they're doing uh, to counter false news, fake news, as well as uh, perhaps uh, international agents trying to interfere with U.S. elections. We'll be following that uh, throughout the day. The testimony is in the afternoon, and we will bring that live to you uh, on Bloomberg Television.
1: Now, want to visit with uh, Noah Feldman. Noah is the Felix Frankfurter Professor of Law of Harvard University. He's also a Bloomberg View columnist, and he is also the author of a new book on uh, James Madison, on the president, uh, of J- presidency of James Madison. The book is entitled "The Three Lives of James Madison: Genius, Partisan, and President." Noah, thank you very much for being with us. Um, you know, I, before we get into James Madison, let's talk about just something a little bit more uh, sort of immediate. And this is the indictments that were handed down uh, by Robert Mueller uh, on um, yesterday for um, Paul Manafort and uh, Mr. Gates and, and just the ongoing uh, investigation. Uh, what do you make of this? What, where do you think this all leads? And, and why is this uh, starting with an indictment of Manafort?
4: It's starting with Manafort because he is vulnerable. If the allegations uh, in the indictment are true, he's exposed himself to up to 80 years in prison by essentially lobbying for foreign governments, not telling anybody about it, keeping the money overseas, not paying taxes on it, and then laundering it to pay for things like renovations on his Hamptons house. So he's a weak link, and since he was, for some period of time, for some months, chairman of the campaign, it's a logical thing from a prosecutor's perspective. You start with the weak link. Where it's going, we still don't know enough to be certain. It's very clear that the Russians were trying to make contacts all over the Trump campaign and the guilty plea of George Papadopoulos offers ample evidence of that. The question is, was there collusion back? You know, did the Trump campaign do anything going back? And it's really much too soon to know that. We don't yet have direct evidence that that did happen. Um, And that's what the investigation is going to turn on. If they can find that it will look like a success for Mueller. And if not, it'll look like a success for the president.
2: You know, no, I want to pick up on that point because you really highlighted that in your column that certainly President Trump seems to view this as a who wins and who loses type of uh, investigation, whereas arguably Robert Mueller views this as trying to find out what happened and the truth. And I'm wondering how important is it to sort of see it through President Trump's lens in in order to figure out whether this will be effective. And even if Trump is uh, impeached, A lot of people think that he will not get expelled from office because the Senate won't convict him.
4: You know, like anything where there are two perspectives, it's really important to see it from both directions. And so from from Mueller's perspective, you know, his career as a public servant comes to fruition whether he gets the president or not. You know, he is going to try to find out what actually happened and provide evidence. And that's how prosecutors typically are, are brought up to see things. But from the president's perspective, and really this is the perspective that's most relevant to our polity as a nation, the question is, does he go down or not? You know, Does he end up in history as as Nixon, or does he end up in history as Bill Clinton, bruised and battered but nevertheless acquitted by the Senate? And so I think it's hard you know, for an elected official not to see things in those terms.
1: Noah, as far as uh, the role of the uh, special prosecutor goes in this, Is there any possibility that the prosecutor will be wrong in in going after certain people in the sense that we focus on the president, but maybe it had nothing to do with decisions made by Donald Trump?
4: You know, prosecutors are human, believe it or not, and they make mistakes, too. In the case of Manafort, assuming that the allegations are are true, and there's no reason really to doubt that at this stage, the prosecutor will, will pick up some scalps of people who are criminals and have done things wrong. Um, and should probably be punished for that, but who may not ultimately lead back to the big investigation. And that, for the prosecutor, that's the kind of mistake that you're talking about, I think. It's where you go after somebody, you try to flip them, and they've got nothing to tell. And that may be true, and that happens to prosecutors. Um, And then, you know, the, the bad luck is to the people who committed the crimes in the first place and made themselves vulnerable to being charged and might otherwise never have been charged.
2: Do you think that Attorney General Jeff Sessions is at risk here?
4: I haven't heard anything thus far suggesting that he uh, is personally at risk, especially um, because the, the key meeting in which the president apparently pushed Comey um, was one in which Sessions wasn't present. So, you know, I think Sessions looks bad around this, but I don't yet have any indication that he himself is directly in the line flyer.
2: You know, I, I just also want to follow up on this whole winner versus loser kind of way that President yeah. Trump seems to be viewing this. I mean, there is another aspect to this. We're going to get elections, <laughs> midterm elections next year, and there is a good chance that should this escalate based on the popularity rankings of President Trump yesterday, uh, that this could definitely impede the Republicans' position in Senate and uh, Congress more broadly. Uh, what, what, what do you, what do you, what's your take on that?
4: Well, you're absolutely right that, in principle, if the president's popularity goes on even further, that should have a gravitational pull on other Republican candidates. It is, however, really important to remember that the first midterm elections in any presidential term almost always result in a significant loss of seats for the president's party. You know, It happened to Bill Clinton, it happened to Barack Obama. It's, it's quite normal, and so there's going to be some pull regardless. Um, The question is, will that be very disproportionate? And if you look at the way the districts are designed, it's not certain that Trump's um, unpopularity will pull down Republicans that much further in, in many House races, because many House districts are gerrymandered such that they're overwhelmingly Democrat or overwhelmingly Republican, and the base may not care.
1: No, just quickly, um in your book uh, the three lives of James Madison genius, partisan and president, do you, would you say that James Madison's one of the first presidents to really understand the power of public opinion and what was then the media?
4: Yeah, absolutely. It was in um it was in John Adams's presidency that he and Jefferson decided they needed to start a newspaper of their own, essentially a Republican newspaper, to go against the Federalist newspaper that was being run by Alexander Hamilton. And they wrote very explicitly about this. In fact, Madison wrote a very famous essay called Public Opinion, where he basically said, you know, we didn't think it was going to work this way under the Constitution. We thought that you know, everyone would do his own research. But now we understand that the media affects the way people think. And so if you want to actually ensure that the Constitution is followed, it's not enough to rely on the government officials. He was thinking of the Adams administration. You actually have to rely on the media to inform the people.
2: Sounds fascinating. A new book, The Three Lives of James Madison, Genius, Partisan, and President, by Noah Feldman, who just joined us. Felix Frankfurter, professor of law at Harvard University, also a Bloomberg View columnist. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.
5: Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com.
6: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
1: Just last week, more than 90% of voters in Lombardy, that's the home to Italy's financial capital, Milan, and the Veneto region around Venice, they voted yes in a non-binding referendum to somehow access more autonomy from the state of Italy. Here to help us understand exactly what's going on is Roberto Maroni. He is the uh, president of the region of Lombardy and he is also a former interior minister of the Italian Republic uh, in the 1990s. Uh, Roberto Maroni, president, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you to you. What, What can you describe for people the difference between the referendum that was held in Italy about autonomy in these two regions and the
7: referendum, the balloting that went on? in Catalonia it's uh, very simple Uh, the referendum in Catalonia was something against the Spanish Constitution Uh, what we did in uh, Lombardy and Veneto is something to uh, to make the Italian Constitution to apply the Italian Constitution in particular a reform of the Constitution which took place 16 years ago Uh, the reform was uh, we uh, the regions can ask for more powers, more competences and more money. In these last 16 years, no regions got new competences, new powers. Why? Because the Italian government was always against giving money and competences. That's why we did the referendum. Uh, It's a non-binding referendum, yes, but from a political viewpoint, uh, uh, this gave me power more than 3 million uh, Lombard people went to vote and this is the difference in a tough negotiation with the government.
2: President Moroni can you just uh, take a step back and explain is it a coincidence that we're seeing these independence or autonomy movements in the economic capitals of a number of European regions, because the Catalonia region is also the economic capital of Spain, much like Lombardy.
7: I don't think it's a coincidence. The problem is that Europe is not working uh the governance of Europe from a political viewpoint is not working it's a sum of individual member states each of them is working as individual member states we have nothing such as the US system federal system and this uh, uh, is um, means that uh, many important regions such as Catalonia Lombardy and Veneto want Europe to change i think i hope that what is happening in Europe uh, is heard by the European Union, the European Commission, the European Parliament, because we need to change uh, the governance of uh, uh, Europe, from a, Europe from a political viewpoint. This is the signal I think uh, people have done with our referendum and also in Catalonia. What would you like to see changed? Uh, because I,
1: I believe that one of the points during the referendum was that the two regions account for about 30% of the economic uh, output of Italy. That includes industrial, agricultural, services, finance, and so on. Do you want more of the tax money to stay in northern uh, Italy rather than go to places in southern Italy and Sicily
7: yes exactly we pay a lot of taxes uh, if you <clears throat> the difference between what we pay in taxes and what we get back from the state from the government is a huge uh, uh, <clears throat> amount of taxes is fifty four billion euros per year the difference I want at least half of this amount 27 billion euros will let me to lower the level of taxation for companies uh, uh, to increase investments from abroad and to put lombardy on the top of the regions in europe
2: I'm trying to understand, you were saying Europe is not working, the European Union is not working, and so that's why the economic powerhouses in Europe are uh, sort of putting their foot down. What would you like to see on a European Union level that would make it work?
7: What we call the Europe of the regions, not of 28, 29, 28 member states, uh, we have 10 million people uh, we would be the sixth uh, country in europe uh, m- m- but we don't count we, we, we as lombardy region don't have any power to interfere with uh, european decisions uh, that's why we want to europe to move from what is now 28 member states uh, into the europe of the regions uh, Uh, Taking into account that Lombardy, Catalonia and regions uh, are something mm, special. That's uh, our our vision.
2: President Moroni, and that's highly radical. That's basically saying break up Italy, break up Spain. It's not about them. It's Lombardy and it's Catalonia. Is that what you're asking for?
7: Uh, we are um, asking in uh, uh, we are, what we want is that uh, Lombardy, Veneto, the regions, the power, uh, the powerful regions in uh, in Europe, uh, can be taken into account more than what is now. Uh, we don't have nothing against Italy, of course. Our referendum uh, was uh, inside uh, the nation, Italian nation, but I think that it will be useful also for Italy and the regions in the south if, uh, if uh, Lombardy is more, uh, has more money and more uh, competences and power.
1: So it seems to be that there's this conflict between the political unity, let's say of Italy or even in Spain, with the economic and financial reality, which is... This is all about money, right? You're a rich yeah. region. You don't want that money to go to regions that have less money.
7: Yet I, I don't be- want money to go to the Italian government because they don't use our money the right way. I, I am willing to give money to the regions, directly to the regions of the South, uh, in a B2B relationship. This is what is useful for the South. Uh, this is my vision. And we, now we are trying to... Uh, uh, <clears throat> with the government to find a solution, a common solution, uh, not against the government, not against Italy, but for the help of the region of the South.
2: Roberto Maroni, thank you so much for being with us, president of the region of Lombardy, uh, which is his presidency is based in Milan in Italy, but he is joining us in our Bloomberg 1130 studios in New York.
1: Focused on fixed income is brought to you by PIMCO for investors who demand more than the markets deliver. All investments contain risk and may lose value. Consult your investment professional before investing. Well, before we do anything, well, we just want to check in with Simon Ballard. He is our global credit strategist for Bloomberg News based in London. Simon, always a pleasure. Hi, I'm going to give you a choice here. This is, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the trifecta. You get to talk either <laughs> about inflation or deflation in the eurozone. Italy and uh, what the effects of uh, quantitative easing have had on the economy, or not, and uh, the alternative for Germany, the uh, nationalist party that won seats in the uh, Bundestag, uh, calling for a lawsuit uh, to question quantitative easing from the ECB. Which one of those uh, do you want to kick off?
6: Whichever one we pick, we're all going to we, we're going to come back to inflation. I think, aren't we? Yeah, indeed, know, the, go for the, it. The, or, the, or the lack of inflation and the and, and the fact that the, you know the ECB. Here we are, four years into uh, into quantitative easing, and they're, they're still trying to chase that two percent uh, or close to uh, target that uh, that they're wanting. So, um, you know, be it uh, be it directly in Germany, be it in Italy, um, you know, the lack of inflation is what's keeping monetary policy accommodative um, at these sort of levels, which is continuing to fuel equities higher and risk assets generally sort of uh, keeping the keeping the flames going.
2: Simon, when you talk to uh, bond fund managers, are they basically asleep? Are they basically like, I don't care, just put it on autopilot, buy everything. I don't care. There's nothing that could shake this.
6: Until they see a catalyst, until they feel there's a catalyst for change, then yes, to a certain extent there is that. Although you do sense that they're becoming a little bit more, how should I put it, a little bit more discerning in their approach to risk. And we've seen you know, a couple of high yield deals recently, sub-investment grade uh, deals, having a little bit more of investor pushback. Uh, there was a deal from uh, from Shop Direct last week. Um, it had a, an F R N tranche. Investors came back, and said the risks, the covenants associated with the name were a little bit too much for them to stomach. So they pulled back and they cut the F R N tranche. F R N being floating
2: floating rate notes, right? I apologise. Okay. Yes,
6: a floating rate note. So they went with a fixed rate coupon uh, tranche. The uh, the yield on that was had, had to be pushed back from seven percent to seven and three quarter percent. May not seem a huge amount, but in the context of a of a multi-hundred billion dollar, a uh, hundred hundred billion pound uh, uh, transaction, it, it is. And it just shows that investors have become a little bit more concerned about the underlying credit fundamentals. So they're not just chasing yield in this environment. They are looking at the, you know, the, the risk reward that they potentially will be left holding if and when inflation starts to pick up, if and when yields start to uh, to to rise more significantly. Simon, is there any uh, clear understanding as to why it would cost twice
1: as much to borrow money from the uh, from the markets? in France and it does in Germany, looking at 10-year yields.
6: I mean, basically, there you're just got to look at the fundamental risks. And uh, while France has improved significantly, uh, or, or did improve significantly, with Monsieur Macron being uh, voted into the, uh, into the into the into the Elysee Palace, um, you know, a couple of question marks have started to uh, to come in. His uh, the, you know, the Macron rally, just as we had the the Trump rally, that faded. The Macron rally has faded to a certain extent. So you've got a, a, a greater degree of, of, of social security costs and and basically weaker economic growth within the within the French Yeah, but does that really? Does that
1: really affect people's uh, opinion when it comes to the ability of the French government to repay its debts? I mean, they're going to repay them in euros, as is Germany, as is Italy, Spain, and so on. Doesn't someone say, gee, this just doesn't make any sense for so long that Spain, you know, the ten-year at 147, the U.S. is at 237, and we don't have anybody yet that's trying to secede.
6: No, absolutely, and to a certain extent, if you look at the level of absolute European yields versus the U.S., you'd argue that from a fundamental perspective, you want to be buying the U.S. all day long because of the you know the improving story um, and and the higher yields there in the U.S. At the end of the day, European investors are sort of obliged to hold European uh, or euro denominated assets, um, and the longer that the ECB continues to sort of pump prime the economy with quantitative easing. Um, you know the, the lower those or certainly the, those low level of yields will, uh, will persist.
2: Simon, uh, we did get results out of BNP Paribas today that showed uh, declines in their debt trading revenues. This kind of follows what we've been seeing. Uh, yeah. And Nomiara just shot a proprietary trading group in London. Um, there has been a marked deterioration in volumes relative to the same period last year. How does this play into the calculus at all?
6: you <laughs> Well, again, you know what we've seen here is a reiteration across the uh, the banking sector and across many industries, should we say, um, of the challenging market conditions that uh, that traders and uh, and investors face. Um, and I think you know the numbers that we had from BNP, while equities were were fairly buoyant on the fixed income side, you know margins continue to be uh, to be pressed. Yeah. Um, and until we start to see the ECB getting into sort of rate tightening into into interest rate raising uh, mode, um, then margins in the financial sector are going to remain uh, are going remain- to but- squeezed
2: i'm just wondering on a broader market perspective the fact that volumes have been coming down that people haven't had conviction does that matter are people caring about bond market liquidity anymore
6: people don't don't care about bond (laughs) market liquidity at the moment they're quite happy just hold but they will do when the market reverses and they're trying to look for a bid (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, that makes, that make, <laughs> that makes sense. Hey, any comments about the Alternative uh, for Germany party and uh, their call for a, uh, a lawsuit uh, questioning Angela Merkel's uh, uh, reliance on the ECB?
6: Yeah, you know, again, I guess, you know, the uh, the AFD and generally, you know, the populist rising that we've seen across Europe, the protectionist type uh, uh, rhetoric that we've seen coming into politics over the course of, I guess, the last couple of years now, um, is really just to help take the uh, the headlines away from uh, from Spain and Catalonia, um, as Pugamoy ends up in, in Belgium. Um, but again, I think it just underscores the, 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 the problems across the eurozone um, at the moment, um, in terms of each individual nation wanting to ensure that it has its own economic growth and, and, and solid foundations for, for, future, uh, <clears throat> for future improvements.
2: Simon Ballard, thank you so much for joining us. Simon Ballard is a global credit strategist for Bloomberg coming to us from London. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg P&L Podcast.
1: You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer.